and welcome to the UD Podcast. More educational than a plastic-free university, more attractive than the UK's renewable energy market right now, and packing more punchlines than a Philip Hammond budget, if that's even possible. Uh, yes, this is the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. It's a, a grey and miserable day outside on Friday the 9th of November, uh, but we're here to brighten it up. Coming up on today's show... The sparks were flying out at our latest Energy Leaders Club event with energy managers outlining their visions for a greener future. I think there's a potential revolution uh, with driverless vehicles and that could really change how people move around, could really change vehicle ownership. And I think when you start to overlay all these things together, along with the complexity of installing in a supply infrastructure and so on, um, it, it really really makes you realise that probably this this is an area that you need to approach with some caution. Matt talks meat-free meals in a chat about sustainable nutrition with the sustainability manager at Corn Foods. I think we're slowly seeing people's awareness of the fact that actually in a world where we need to curb climate change, that actually the food that we eat, you know, three times a day, I find that quite an empowering message actually, you can make an impact with every meal that you have. And one of the ways is potentially to reduce your consumption of meat and dairy. Often that's for health reasons first of all, but we're here to say that actually we've got the science behind the fact that um, corn in particular um, is better for you, better for the planet. And Sarah has a particularly inspiring chat with the founder of the Women in Sustainability movement. So we have got a a, a significant gender pay gap in sustainability, which is really surprising because actually, you know, gender equality is paramount to sustainability. You can't, uh, we are not going to, we're not going to tackle the world's problems if we don't fully allow uh, women to, to be fully involved. So yes, uh, there we go. Um, uh, welcome back for another episode of the UD Podcast, uh, another packed episode. I'm joined here today in the studio uh, by the ED editorial team. Um, or am I? Because uh, I noticed this morning, I think we had a bit of a home alone moment as we came in this morning, um, half an hour in, suddenly realising something wasn't quite right because uh, George isn't here. He's not turned up for work and I'm not quite sure where he is. Matt, have you got any ideas? No, but I'm, I'm genuinely worried. George is the type of person you don't let cross the road without holding his hand, essentially. I'm very worried we're going to have a knock at the door later on or something. <laughs> yeah, that sounds a bit, uh, yeah, a bit bad. But uh, George, if you are out there, you can hear us, uh, then yeah, please do come back home, join, uh, join your ED family, because uh, hopefully it wasn't something we said, but uh, if it was, I'm sure we didn't mean it. Um, anyway, that's the sad news over. George isn't joining us. But the good news is Sarah is here, uh, alive and well. Sarah, hello. Happy Friday. Happy Friday, Luke. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, apart from obviously George's absence, <laughs> which has left a gaping hole in my heart. Um, <laughs> but I'm sure that this will cheer things up a little. Good. What have you been up to? It's been a, it's been a, everyone seems to be saying this, but it has been a busy few weeks. What's been the kind of highlight of your last couple of weeks? Um, well, the highlight of the week before this was obviously our Spark event, as you mentioned mm-hmm. um, at the beginning, and I was sort of leading on the podcast um, charge from that, and then sitting in on two, um, two roundtables about energy innovation. Yeah. Um, so lots to learn there from speakers from a number of sectors. I think we had universities, retailers, built environment sector, um, just across the board really. Mm. Um, And then this week I've been up at Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit in London, so expect to hear back from that. 
interesting. Um, and uh, Matt, uh, aside from uh, WhatsApping us stories about uh, Arsenal players saving the world with personal hygiene products, uh, what's been taking up your time since our last episode? Probably just coffee, really. The amount, <laughs> amount of times I've, I've kind of trekked up to London to meet a few kind of PR firms or businesses that have expressed interest in getting to know us but it sounds like a tinder date it's not a, it's not a, it's not a date my, my girlfriend would kill me if that was the case but no meeting a few um fair few pr firms um to discuss you know uh how they can start appearing on our webinars on our podcasts for example so there's a lot of wheels in motion there we're also close to signing off a few reports around um our awards events so mm-hmm. That's been taking up a lot of my time. I can't go to sleep without seeing the uh, 2019 logo at the moment. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, so a lot going on. I suppose we should probably explain what that WhatsApp message was about now because I must admit you sent it across and I didn't end up reading it. What is it? It was two footballers that had launched. Yeah, so Matthew Flamini, he's an ex-Arsenal player. Okay. Um, and he's he's meant to have a, a really big business <clears throat> opportunity going on in some sort of biochemical I remember seeing yeah a couple of years ago he made yeah. big big news and apparently that's still going on but he's he, he kind of formed a bit of a bromance of his time at Arsenal with Mesut Ozil who's still there and now they've um, seemingly out of the blue formed um, a new company I think it's called Unify or, or something Unity that, Unity it? that's Unity, it yeah, yeah. Unity um, that makes um, packaging for I think like Wash, yeah, stuff. It's like body wash, yeah, and things like that. Um, out of out of like sugar cane and bio, bio-based materials. So okay, uh, yeah, well, in true Arsenal style, we're dithering about without much substance here. So let's get going on the podcast, um, Mr. Podcast Secretary. Where are we going? Where are you taking us first? Spark, a kind of roundtable-esque event we've hosted for our Energy Leaders Club. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of started out the day with a panel overview, featuring some very high-level speakers. Um, a few videos shot throughout the day, some of which I believe are on the website right now. So go check them out after you finish listening to this podcast. Yeah. Um, but this has been kind of your your baby, hasn't it, Luke? Uh, it has. Yeah, I suppose it has. One of them. One of many babies. <laughs> um, yeah. So the Energy Leaders Club, for anyone that doesn't know about it, is this. Uh, it's a new kind of member-only program we've launched, um, offering kind of free informal sessions and events and workshops for in-house energy managers and practitioners um, essentially kind of creates the space for sharing best practice and supporting one another on the road to uh, reduced emissions. Uh, it's been a great success so we're closing in on 200 members. Um, we only launched it I think back in June or July mm-hmm. um, and last week yes Spark was our second club event to date. This was really our flagship energy event of the year so we kind of ripped up the traditional conference for- format um, no PowerPoints, just kind of rich two-way discussions focused on different roundtables, as Sarah mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, about various topics in the energy space. And members could essentially choose which roundtables they sat on. So they were kind of creating their own agenda in that sense. And uh, yeah, it was a good event. And actually, uh, I'm going to sort of hijack the episode because I only mentioned this just before we came on air. But I would quite like to uh, play a little excerpt from... Uh, my own speak. No, I'm joking. Not my own. <laughs> uh, from Steve Holiday's uh, keynote talk, because uh, Steve Holiday, I think, 
people will know him as the ex-CEO of National Grid. He's now the president-elect at the Energy Institute, a uh, very well-known figure in the energy industry uh, generally, uh, and I was very delighted that he uh, came aboard and joined us to give the keynote talk, sort of opening up the day, and I just thought it was a really nice way of sort of setting the scene for that event and hopefully setting the scene for the, the podcast interviews which follow. So the interview is online on a, in a YouTube video, um, and should we kind of play an excerpt from it or play the whole thing? Should we try and play the whole thing and then see how it goes? I mean, you're just giving me more work to do at this point, but um, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> Let's play the uh, excerpt from uh, Steve Holliday's keynote talk at Spark. Energy for me has always been about big big size, you know, it's been about scale, it's been a big oil on a global basis, it's been about the so-called big six here in the UK, electricity has always been about megawatts, you know, not kilowatts, it's always been about scale, 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 and in fact, most of my career has been defined by that. I started to work with Exxon as a young man, and of course, I ended up with National Grid, you know, big, big organisations. Um, but things changed. Things were changing around me as the CEO of National Grid enormously. There's no question that the big networks, you know, still supplying energy to millions of people in National Grid in the UK and, and the US will exist, but operations were, were changing enormously. And the last few years was, in some ways, the most fun part of my career. And I don't talk about big quite so much these days in my retirement, because actually things are moving completely to the other end of the scale. It's almost as if we're reversing where we were back in the 1950s when everything was agglomerating in, in the developed world and bringing businesses together. And individual users of energy, therefore, I think have more power today than ever, ever before. If you look at what's happened here in the UK, it's just remarkable. It's just incredible in a decade what, what's happened. And it's shifting the power. Shifting the power of people who previously, the big players, definitely had, had the power. And people talk about the energy transformation, which for years I've always said, don't use that word, that's just not true, it's a revolution. Transformation sounds like some well-planned step-by-step. You know, this is a chaotic revolution. And that's not a negative, I think that's a real, a real positive. The Energy Institute, all its fellows, talk about four themes at the moment. They talk about the four Ds, decarbonisation, decentralisation, digitisation, and democratization of energy. Not bad headings in my view. Let me just touch on, on decentralization to start with. This has gone from big to small, as I said, in 10 years. Yes, things are still connected into, into the networks, but solar and wind, as, as many of you will know, don't connect to the national grid as the big generators used to. 50% of our energy now is, is carbon free, and all that generation has been pushed really deep into the networks, really deep into the distribution systems. So when I was retiring from National Grid, it was quite extraordinary um, that at times of the day, 40% of the power that was being generated in Great Britain was invisible. You couldn't see it. It was coming into the local networks. It was solar, and it was wind, it was all small stuff. 40%. It was a weekend in March last year that, that you probably remember in the media for the first time ever that the demand was lower in the afternoon than overnight. Lower in the afternoon than overnight? How can that possibly be? Well, it's because we had 13 gigawatts of solar in the system, that's why. So the real demand on the transmission system and generation has flipped on its head uniquely. 
And people, including myself, were just shocked at how quickly this happened. 2015 was, was the pivotal year, actually, when we built the best part of 10,000 megawatts of solar here. Today, as I said, we've got 13 gigawatts of solar. There were people in the energy industry and big companies, certainly 10 years ago, who would have said, that will never happen. It's impossible. Not because of the economics so much, but because we just can't handle that degree of uncertainty and intermittency on the system. And, of course, they, they were wrong. What's caused it is lots of good subsidies. The government get a bad rap at times, I think, for putting too much subsidy in there. I spend my life saying, you can't ever get it perfectly right. But, boy, did it work. You know, it really ignited, sparked off this fun, a new industry and transformed it in a matter of a few years. And now we've got PV pretty competitive, onshore wind in the UK, probably the, actually the cheapest source of generation available today. And the cost of all that stuff has just come down unbelievably. You know, the scaling up has just been remarkable. That's not just true in the UK, of course, it's true everywhere else as well. So there we go, I'm sure you'll agree. A, uh, yeah, fantastic way of opening that event and, and opening up these next chats because uh, I then was busy chairing the event. Um, Sarah, it fell to you to, to go out and grab some po podcast interviews and Sounds like you did a good job because you came back with a few. Yeah, so the format of the discussions that took place after the keynote was that there were, as you mentioned, sort of five roundtable discussions, um, each on a different topic. Mm -hmm. um, so I managed to grab four speakers from four different um, roundtable discussions so we could cover as many of those topics as possible. And the order in which you're going to hear them, I think they're going to be played in a relay. Is that right? Yep, that's the plan. Yeah. Another relay. <laughs> are from behaviour change, um, e-mobility, energy innovations, and finally flexibility. Okay, well I've got the four written down here and hopefully we'll run them in that same order, this order here. So, um, what you're about to hear, let's hope it all does play in the right order, um, is uh, first up we've got the University of Warwick's Head of Energy and Sustainability, Joel Cardinal. Then we're going to go and hear from Whitbread's Head of Energy and Environment, uh, Kian Hatton. Uh, then uh, we're through to Inspiring Sustainability's uh, Growth Strategy Lead, Adam Woodhall. Uh, finally, we'll hear from the Solar Trade Association's Director of Advocacy and New Markets, Leonie Green. So let's run those four short interviews in full. Yes, so I'm here at Spark, which is our first energy leaders conference that we've ever hosted. Um, I'm just here after the morning session, which has seen us had some interesting discussions with our keynote speakers and then a panel who were asked about everything from EV uptake to their favourite innovations to the importance of behaviour change. Um, and one of our four panellists was Joel Cardinal, who is the Head of Energy and Sustainability at the University of Warwick, who's been kind enough to join me here to share his insights on the behaviour change piece. So, Joel, thanks for joining me. Good morning. Um, yeah, so firstly, could you just give our listeners a sort of overview of how the uni is set up? I know you mentioned that there's 7,000 student rooms on campus. So In, just to yeah. give us an idea of how it's laid out how many students and staff you have. Okay, yeah, what we, we like to say the university is like a, a little town of 30,000 people. So the university has 25,000 students, uh, 6,000 staff. Uh, we never know how many buildings, but it's probably anywhere <laughs> between 250 or 450, uh, depending on the size. But the, the key interesting part is that the university operates 12 months a year, 24 seven. Mm. Uh, we have uh, nearly 7,000 student halls. Uh, so there's two, seven, nearly 7,000 student beds uh, across a number of halls. Uh, we have uh, hotels, we have sports centre, art centre. So the university is, 
is just living 24-7 and uh, um, students are a big part of that through their uh, residence on the campus. Mm. And then sort of recently we've seen a lot of news about other universities using a sort of external agency to run a behaviour change or employee engagement scheme for employees but as you mentioned that's not the case for Warwick. Um, so how is the sort of behaviour change piece playing out on campus? The, on the university, we, we're lucky to have uh, one of the uh, civil research um, uh, teams um, working very hard on behavioural science. Uh, we have very good uh, academics working on social sciences. So for us, it's just normal to use both our um, academic colleagues uh, for them to use the campus as a living laboratory. We, we do that in many ways, you know, living laboratory for, for food, for waste, for behavior, for energy. Uh, so engaging with both the students, the academics, the, uh, the postgraduate students is, uh, is our way to do that. And it's much better to do it through uh, in-house campaigns rather than buying a product. I think I understand platform are very useful perhaps when the scale goes up, perhaps when the complexity goes up, but uh, I think it's essential to be able to address each population with their own vocabulary, their own expectations, and that's probably best started with an in-house campaign designed by the people from the university. Mm. But you also mentioned that there is a sort of element of gamification in this for students and staff. Did you mention something about a scorecard for students? Uh, yes, we, we, we do that. We do that through, um, uh, and this is really coming from uh, behavioural research. What we do is, it's, it's acceptable that not many people understand kilowatt hours and meter cubes. And right. so talking pure technical vocabulary is not going to make people changing their behaviour. So what we do is we use uh, the output of uh, science to, to say that's engaging people with more uh, a peer review um, uh, vocabulary rather than technical one is, is perhaps better. So what we did last year, we did a prototype which we are expanding this year and the idea is really to tell the students in their flat uh, through a, a bit of a scorecard report weekly or, or every two weeks to say the consumption of your flat is going up or down and your ranking is going up and down mm -hmm. and, and more playing with the, with the uh, gamification, with the, uh, with, with the perhaps appeal for competitive spirit to try to make people changing and hopefully they can realise the, the benefit for them or for the environment as well. So as a sort of institute of higher education, do you feel that behaviour change has such an important space in sort of energy efficiency and sustainability as, say, um, policy changes or innovation? Sort of where does it fit into this puzzle? I think behaviour is absolutely key. It's, it's probably one of the most difficult ones, much more difficult than technical. You know, it's much more difficult than going out and putting in the plant room a new piece of kit which is 20% more efficient because that only needs a few good engineers which we have plenty but the, the behaviour is really what will drive uh, the whole UK population to be able to deliver the UK climate change because it's, it's, uh, it's behaviour required not only on switching the light behind us or switching off the computer but it's, uh, it's perhaps having shorter showers rather than a bath or it's perhaps changing our diet so behaviour will be everywhere uh, and, and that's the hardest thing to do. So there you have it, it's no mean feat but it will be a big driver of change. Um, so I'm aware that I've taken up most of Joel's coffee break <laughs> so I shall let him get on with it um, and I'll be back soon with more insight from Spark. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much Sarah.
So we are moving into the afternoon here at the Spark Energy Leaders Summit in Birmingham where I'd like to say it's sunny but it's pretty dismal out there but at least everyone's been fed and watered and hopefully taken away some good insight from their first round table. So um, joining me this lunchtime is Whitbread's Head of Energy Environment for the Premier Inn and Restaurants UK um, part of the operation, Kian Hatton. So thank you very much for joining me and for taking your lunchtime out. Um, so the round table that Kian's been sitting on this morning has been the e-mobility um, the e-mobility topic. So could you just give us a sort of insight into sort of how e-mobility works for your company and where you are on your journey so far? Okay, so I think there's three sort of main points of relevance uh, for Whitbread. Uh, one is uh, providing um, the facility for customers that come today at our hotels and restaurants uh, to charge electric vehicles and the evolution of that. Um, the other is our staff, so actually how we provide charging centres for them or what type of cars they're made available for those uh, for those people. Um, and uh, the third one is logistics, so actually what do we want to do in terms of transitioning our logistics fleet to uh, electric or alternative fuels? So that's the sort of relevance for Whitbread, I think. I mean, often when we have this sort of discussion, it will be with companies that have a big fleet themselves, utilities companies, um, freight shipping companies, um, things like UPS. Um, but with that not being, that's not the case for you guys. Well, we do have um, our, our Kuhn and Nagel, who are logistics provider, mm. um, uh, because of the contractual arrangement around the vehicles there, we do report on emissions from uh, that fleet. Okay. Um, so, um, uh, and it's within our science-based carbon target, uh, we report on that too, because mm -hmm. um, effectively we would own those vehicles should that arrangement change. Mm -hmm. So, um, it, it is in partly relevant to us. And then often for companies with big fleets, um, the discussion is just about electrifying everything as soon as possible. Um, but I'm hoping that today's discussion was a bit more nuanced and that you have some different key takeaways that you could share. Absolutely. So I think um, I came into the discussion uh, with a real open mind, wanted to hear what other people had views other people had on it and what, and, what, uh, and what I could learn from other businesses but uh, I've come out of it um, and with the conclusion that uh, it's, this is a really really uncertain space um, it seems whether we're talking about uh, staff vehicles whether we're talking about domestic use of electric vehicles fleets and so on <clears throat> what we're actually doing at the moment is we seem to be facilitating a, a transition where we take the current way we move about and uh, say well let's just electrify that so actually we don't seem to be looking at efficiency um, uh, enough, so we don't seem to be saying, well actually, um, should we be challenging how much people are required to move around for, for, for business um, and in their personal lives, and, um, and this becomes more of a sort of social issue, um, that really we should be tackling it from the efficiency end of, uh, end of the um, stick first. Right. Um, and, and the other thing is that I think there's a potential revolution uh, with driverless vehicles, and that could really change how people move around could really change vehicle ownership and I think when you start to overlay all these things together along with the complexity of installing a supply infrastructure and so on um, it, it really it really makes you realize that probably this is this, this is an area that you need to approach with some caution and not jump in to saying the solution is let's just electrify everything because actually the final solution 
if there is such a thing, is uh, probably going to be more complex and more nuanced, as you'd say. Mm. So sort of a discussion around a wider shift um, into how sort of people and businesses culturally approach mobility rather than simply electrifying everything. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's certainly the way the debate today has gone. Um, Focusing specifically on Whitbread, obviously, we we have the three specific areas of interest, as I mentioned at the beginning. Um, But um, in the spirit of what I was just describing, if you take, um, should we provide uh, electric vehicle charging points at a hotel? Well, absolutely, we probably should provide more of those now to accommodate the increasing number of electric vehicles. But would we want to provide enough for all our guests, all our hotels? Probably not, because actually there's so much uncertainty around how electrical vehicle uptake is going to evolve, what the technology will look like, and the range of the vehicles and so on. So it's just, it's perhaps being a hugely early adopter and rushing into this probably isn't the right, either for us or for our customers. Mm, And perhaps not even the most sustainable in terms of manufacturing products that might not be used or might be obsolete or can't be recycled. Absolutely, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And there is a big debate around what goes into the batteries, of course, as well. Mm -hmm. No, so I think that sums it up nicely and I'll let Kian get on with the rest of his lunch break now. But thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Right, so still at Spark, we are on to the Energy Innovation Roundtable, which is the one that I've been sitting on um, all day. And we've had the joy of having participants from retail, universities, um, built environment sector, manufacturing sector, food and drink, all across the board, um, really. And helping to chair that discussion was Adam Woodhalls, who works for um, Inspiring Sustainability. And as he's told me, he's got two kinds of hats on there, um, both as the lead for the growth strategy and as a storyteller. So thank you for joining me, Adam. Thank you. No, it's been a pleasure working with you today. Yeah. Could you just tell the listeners maybe a little bit more about your role and what you do and how that relates to the sort of energy innovation aspect of things? Yes, I've been interested in innovative ways of uh, changing practices in businesses for 12 years around sustainability. Um, be it now, for the first uh, two-thirds of that time, I was actually focused on working with large organisations on their uh, behavioural change, employee engagement, shall we say. Um, <clears throat> so my clients were actually a lot of the people that um, have just been referred to. Now, though, I actually focus on the, the startups and the entrepreneurs that are actually creating the innovations that uh, these businesses are looking to apply uh, to be able to get those uh, reductions that they, uh, they require, either for the financial reasons or the, the, uh, the ethical reasons. And so what I'm really interested in, what, what uh, was, uh, drew me here, was actually to be able to understand from those large organisations um, what their challenges are, what their opportunities are around uh, delivering innovation in their organisations and we actually got was it some uh, kind of interesting conversation uh, with that so it was a fascinating conversation Yeah so as Adam said he has been on sort of both sides of the automation versus behaviour change coin which was one of our um, key discussion points but also discussed was the sort of importance of innovation not necessarily as the newest or most sexy product but maybe as just a different way of thinking um, communicating or actually could you shed a bit more light on that? Yeah, definitely, because uh, there was uh, quite a spread of organisations, some which are seen as uh, industry leaders around this, and some which actually are still only just coming to the game. 
and uh, especially for those that are kind of like uh, uh, not made industry leadership uh, the big challenge for them is actually how do they apply innovative thinking um, to be able to deliver this and, and a lot of that actually innovation was thinking about how you get into the heads of those senior leaders to enable uh, it so that they can uh, approve those projects um, that you wanted to be able to deliver. Or alternatively, even get it so that the different sites are all being more consistent in the way that they manage their energy. Um, so it's it's all about that, that kind of uh, getting into the minds of people. So it's actually there was an interesting connection between what was probably being talked about on the behaviour change table as well, uh, which is kind of my historic uh, role. And uh, so, but I think the you know what was interesting is the the other side from those uh, organisations which are the kind of the leaders. Um, they quite a few of them have got ring fenced budgets, which kind of produce gasps of jealousy from some of the organisations. Yes, I was going to say some people are facing way different challenges or different levels of challenges with sort of boardroom buying and achieving funding than yeah. others. So there was a big spread of that of that. But I think that something that everyone was in agreement with was that innovation could only go so far and that the piece for optimising the basics and sort of rethinking how you do your day-to-day -day could also be classed as innovation as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's uh, they, uh, there was a, a lot of good conversation about how we did it and what was nice is when we did a kind of like a, a, a discussion around at the end about what people took of it, it was actually part of it was reassurance, reassurance that a lot of these organisations either people face the same challenges as they do in terms of implementing innovation or that actually they're not doing it maybe as bad as sometimes they think they are and uh, so I think it's a very I think these sort of conversations, uh, these sort of places are really rich, not only for kind of best practice sharing, and I'm pretty sure that some people that have gone away kind of going, oh, I want that innovation in my business, but also making sure that people feel as though they're, they're approaching it in the right way. It's about getting the senior leadership on board. And then I think one thing that did come out really clearly um, was the need for perseverance on this. Um, is that it, you know, it's not going to take uh, weeks or months, it's years and years sometimes before you can actually see the innovation happening, even though innovation feels like something that should be happening straight away. So I think it was a, a really a rich and rounded conversation, actually. Oh, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it um, so much. So, but there you have it. If you're worried about innovation or you think you're making slow progress, the chances are you're not alone. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm aware that Adam has to go and grab his train now. Where are you off to this evening? I'm off back down to London today. <laughs> All right. Well, have a safe journey and thank you for podcasting with us this afternoon. Pleasure. Thank you. Um, so it's the end of Spark now and the sun is beginning to set over Birmingham. So I've got my last speaker of the day, um, who is Leonie Green, who is the Director of Advocacy and New Markets for the STA, the Solar Trade Association. Um, and she's been sort of the guest expert on our Flexible Energy Roundtable. And the tagline for that was Achieving a Flexible Energy Future. So thank you for joining me after three hours of discussion on that topic, Leonie. That's a pleasure. Very and interesting discussion. Yes. Um, so sort of just to give the readers a sort of picture of how what you do fits into this sort of flexible energy transformation. Well, I have to say, I think we and our members, which is battery storage as well as solar, mm. um, we're right on the front line of system change. So from our perspective, more flexible markets can't happen quickly enough. Um, you know, we can make 
home smart, businesses smart today. Um, the issue for us is that regulation is lagging behind and markets are lagging behind. So what we lack are those markets into which you can sell those flexibility services. Mm. Um, so we're certainly out there pushing for this to happen as quickly as possible. And there's a huge uh, national benefit of doing so because if we can get much more flexibility into the system, we can really shave demand peaks, mm. we can have much more efficient network utilisation. So when you're talking about a future of you know, a lot more EV charging, potentially much spikier demand, um, you know, if we just go along with business as usual, it's so important that we develop this smart, flexible system, otherwise there's a danger of being left with a very expensive and wasteful system. Mm. And as well as the sort of benefits of the system, did you guys discuss business benefits with that and how to achieve buy-in for those benefits? Yes, we did. Um, to some extent, I think, um, I mean, I, what I saw today is the value of this kind of uh, energy club, because... I think especially around the area of flexibility when you're talking about some very complex regulation or markets that can sound a bit obscure, especially if you know your business is in other areas. Um, you know, I think this is quite a new concept for people. You've got a you know a few players who are sort of ahead of the curve and can absolutely spot the opportunity. I mean, one person on our table from a company that has absolutely seen this as the future, and they're making investments today, quite serious investments in battery storage. Um, but you've got others who you know it's not their core business. Um, it all sounds a bit impenetrable and jargon-packed. Um, so I certainly saw today the value of this kind of club so that people can start to understand the value of concepts like flexibility. Mm. And then it's, it sounds like you guys also had a big discussion around the policy piece, um, backing this up, because obviously businesses, it's sort of which moves first, the chicken or the egg, the policy or the business. Um, was that a topic that you guys covered? Yes. Um, I mean, I think one of the issues is is the extent to which government recognises the commercial and industrial sector as actors in this space. And they haven't necessarily, uh, government hasn't necessarily made it easy for some of these actors. So it's not just about the complex regulations or the new markets. It's about how government taxes some of these investments. Mm. So, you know, I think there's some frustration around, you know, business rates, for example, on solar. Uh, we were very disappointed with the budget, but also business rates on battery storage because that's set to be impacted the same way. Um, and that's a real shame. So there's, there's some very simple things, I think, that um, could be done um, that would enable people to think about how they can more easily invest in these technologies to boost their, their business bottom line. Mm. And as you mentioned, we are sitting here just a few days after the budget, which sadly doesn't seem to be providing any sort of respite from the issues that you've just discussed. Yes, I think a lot of us were very taken aback by that budget. I mean, coming so hard on the back of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change warning that, you know, we really are running out of time to bend the curve. Um, so, yes, it was very disappointing. I mean, the Energy Minister had certainly given a lot of indications that uh, we would have parity on business rate treatment with on-site gas. I think that's pretty basic um, in this day and age. 
Um, so we were very disappointed that the Chancellor hasn't delivered that. But as I say, it's not over yet. You know, um, the Energy Department is still looking at opportunities um, to, you know, look at how we can level that playing field um, through other means. So it's not over yet. No, so a little ray of optimism there in the face of, um, in the face of the budget, and as you put it, the sort of mountain of jargon that people maybe have to overcome um, at the moment. Um, but I think that's all we have time for this afternoon. So thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you. That's my pleasure. All right. Take care. Have a safe journey back. Well, there we go. Uh, fascinating stuff. Thanks to Joel, to Kian, to Adam, and to Leone for their time on the day and for those chats. Sarah, um, who was your favourite? Oh, that's just mean. You can't make me pick a favourite. No, you must um, have had a favourite in terms of a, the interview, at least. I love them all, but I just feel like maybe I enjoyed talking to Joel just because he was really inspiring on the panel um, in the morning first. So it was good to get sort of a deeper insight to some of the points that he raised there. I'm very sorry to the other three. <laughs> Who is your uh, least favourite? Oh, <laughs> I draw the line there. Okay, um, yeah, well, that was it for uh, part one. Um, stay tuned for part two, where we're going to see uh, if we can find George. Uh, but more importantly, we'll be chatting about your lunchtime sandwich. Welcome back to part two of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. We've taken a bit of a refreshment break there. Matt, you said... Hugh Fernley Whittenstall's doing bits on Twitter while we're away. What's going on? Doing bits, not in the context of what people might think if there's any Love Island listeners watching. Oh, no, 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 he's shocked and appalled, thinking of him in a bikini by the poolside. <laughs> he's, he's not part of the Do Bit Society, as far as I'm aware. But he has spread a really good message on Twitter this morning um, about the Iceland's palm oil advert, which has been, some say banned, I would probably say blocked from TV this Christmas mm-hmm. over a what's been cited as a political message. Okay. Um, it's quite a heavy, quite a heavy advert actually. When I sat down and watched it, it's about Rangtang, the orangutan, um, okay. who appears in this little girl's um, bedroom, sort of animated, and she wants to get rid of the orangutan because he's making a mess. And then she asks him, "Why are you here?" And he goes on to say that, like, oh, um, you know, humans showed up in my forest and uh, tracked all the trees down and killed my mother. Very kind of like, you know, twenty first century Bambi style. Mm. Heavy hitting stuff, but he's he's basically said that it's not political; it's it's ethical, which I agree with. Her. Because they've banned it, and now Hughes suggesting yeah. that they shouldn't. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, oh, interesting. Sorry to just randomly throw that in there. I thought it would be interesting to find out. Um, uh, one thing I was uh, a bit uh, sorry to see was that you didn't come back with your uh, usual signature bacon butties in the break there, Matt. Um, was it something we said or? It's just uh, it's just a, you know it's the new me essentially. Um, I've I've had my eyes open to the um, the impacts of I suppose a meat based diet. I'm not going to say I'm a vegetarian. Um, I wouldn't even probably class myself as flexitarian. I think okay. the terms is. Yeah. I just eat less meat now, um, mainly out of cost because I'm I'm poor. <laughs> but I think there is that growing trend going on right now, isn't there? About um, the impacts of certainly the meat and dairy has in terms of climate change, um, agriculture, etc. Mm. Yeah, and I didn't have too much. Obviously, you sent across the the sort of the notes of where we were going with the podcast, and I did a little bit of looking into where this conversation is currently at. And was it is, I'm always fascinated to see. I mean, I'm going to say two things here. One, I'm always fascinated to see how significant an impact mm. it has if you do cut meat out of your diet and shift to a plant-based diet. I think it was, was it Project Drawdown, who we featured on a previous episode. Yeah. It's one of their 
top two or three most significant things that could be sort of undertaken to um, reverse global warming. I think um, it was um, Alex Stubbins as well when, you, when we kind of asked her for her predictions. Oh, yeah. It might have been yeah. this time last year, actually. Like, yeah. Predictions for the year. She said, like, yeah, veganism will become a yeah. much more mainstream thing. And, but then the second thing I was going to say was, I, it's one of those things that I'm ashamed to say you kind of see and then you find yeah. yourself on the Saturday night having a steak or eating something and thinking, well, it's a really difficult, you know, it's, it's almost a habit, isn't it? And it's a thing that's going to have to affect everyone if we're really going to affect wider change. But I was looking at some research and I was just thinking because I'm, um, I'm quite hungry, as you can see by my pot of porridge that I'm trying to slowly eat throughout this episode, but looking forward to the lunchtime break. And I saw this, came across this um, research from University of Manchester. So they carried out the first ever study um, looking at the carbon footprint of sandwiches, both homemade and pre-packaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they considered essentially the whole life cycle of sandwiches. And I'm only just looking at this, but it was just quite fascinating. So the team looked at 40 different sandwich types, which I'm sure was a fun afternoon, um, <laughs> different recipes, different combinations. They found uh, the highest carbon footprints for the sandwiches with pork, meat, so bacon, ham, sausages, um, and those containing cheese or prawns. Um, of the recipes considered, the most carbon-intensive variety of sandwich is a ready-made all-day... I should have made you, made you guess this one, but anyway. It's a ready-made <laughs> all-day breakfast sandwich, uh, egg, bacon, sausage. They estimate that type of sandwich generates 140, no, 1,441 grams of CO2, um, is which is... per sandwich? Per sandwich, the equivalent to driving a car for 12 miles. Really? Yeah, I just thought it was quite interesting. Um... Lowest carbon emission equivalent is simple homemade favourite ham and cheese. Where did they come up with it? Like, you know what we should spend the next like six months doing? Just, you know, carbon intensity of sandwiches. Yeah, well, and it also then reminded me of another little thing, which I've, I've told this story, I think, already over the news desk, but this one of this, uh, this guy named Andy George, um, and he's got this YouTube channel, and he's basically a documentary filmmaker, and he does everything the hard way on this on this YouTube video. He basically sees if he can make stuff from scratch, like from real, pure mm-hmm. kind of scratch. And this first episode of this kind of podcast series, uh, this YouTube series he did, um, it sort of chronicles his attempt to make a sandwich without buying anything. So he harvests the wheat, he um, grinds the flour, milks the cow, collects the honey, makes homemade cheese and butter. Homemade, I'm not sure how he makes homemade cheese and butter, that sounds a bit wrong. Anyway, he, he makes homemade cheese and butter and, um, and boils down seawater sea to get salt, um, baking the bread, growing the lettuce and tomatoes and slaughtering the chicken himself. Um, and it turned out to be a six-month process. Any idea how much you think it cost in dollars to make this sandwich? Just one sandwich. Thirty-five. I'm gonna go with more. I think it's gonna be seventy. Cost fifteen hundred dollars. Wow, for all of that stuff. Uh, Yeah, which uh, turned out to be a six-month process, as I say, fifteen hundred dollars. And it's just quite an interesting video if you're interested. Uh, Search for Andy George. I'm sure it will come up. Or not until this podcast finished, though. Yeah, not until the podcast finished. I'm sure we've made you all probably quite hungry, but maybe hopefully not for the right for the wrong reasons. Anyway, we're going around the houses, so let's get back on track. Um, Matt, so uh, set the scene. So you took a trip up to London. Uh, this was at the Carbon Trust Summit, is that right? Yeah, and full disclosure, this was a while ago, probably maybe a month or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really surprised to see a new array of speakers that I hadn't really come across before. And one of them was. 
um, Louise Needham, the sustainability manager at Corn Foods. Mm -hmm. And she was really friendly and really approachable. And I actually just asked if I could grab kind of 10 minutes with her on a very windy balcony at London City Hall um, <laughs> for, a, yeah, for a chat about not just that, that whole diet discussion around um, climate change and sustainability, but Corn's own um, targets around plastic packaging, carbon reduction, etc. It's a really exciting company to work for. Mm. One of the pledges on our Mission Possible pledge wall, as well, I might add. Um, well, apologies for any audio issues with the wind in, in advance, uh, but here is Matt's chat with Corn's sustainability manager, Louise Needham, in full. Right, so I am on a rather windy uh, balcony at um, London City Hall, and right now I am joined by Louise Needham, who is the sustainability manager at Corn Foods. Um, Louise, I've just tucked into a nice, I'm assuming it was a vegan um, meal anyway, um, which is a nice kind of introduction to you and, and Corn Foods. I think a lot of our listeners and a lot of people know Corn as the brand now. It is probably the biggest kind of non-meat-based food brand around at the moment but um, in terms of sustainability I, I have to admit I was quite surprised when I saw the agenda for the Carbon Trust event and saw Corn Foods down to speak. It's not a company I, I've seen much of and, and know much about their sustainability issues so I suppose as an introduction it might be good just to get your um, your a brief summary of what your strategy entails in terms of sustainability, like what are your key aims and ambitions that you're trying to deliver at Corn Foods? Of course, and I guess that's my job to try and change that perception, get us out and, out, out and about a little bit more. Because we, I guess, we have a really good story to tell around sustainability. Um, for those that are uh, more familiar with our brand and our business, we produce a, a new kind of protein, uh, mycoprotein. It's not new really, it's been around since the 60s. But interestingly, our story, as it goes back to the 60s, was all around the founder of our business wanting to produce a new protein that would avoid the kind of use of, a, of an animal, essentially. So we have quite an interesting context there in terms of food security and the sustainability of our food systems. And then more recently, I started working for Corn in 2010, I guess to truly understand the impact of our own products. We're the mm. only business um, in on the globe that produces mycoprotein. Um, so therefore, we're the best place to truly analyze the products in terms of their carbon impact um, and that's what we've been doing with the Carbon Trust since 2010-2011. So a lot of what we do started with that analysis and that continues as we understand what the impact of different products are in different markets. Um, but now it's about truly investing I guess in corporate sustainability, understanding what that means to us. So setting targets in terms of our scope one and two emissions and things like that. Essentially what's, what's interesting is that we came at sustainability from a slightly different angle. Often organisations will understand their own emissions before they perhaps um, go into kind of value chain footprinting and the impacts of beyond their own operations. We did it the other way around and it's incredibly complex but we of course we had to because we wanted to understand how we compare essentially with other, other proteins and other foods so yeah we did it slightly different way around I guess. Yes. And how, I mean, how do you compare both approaches of food? I, I know the, the meat and dairy aspect of climate change is a debate that's starting to happen, certainly amongst academics, probably not amongst consumers in terms of uh, consumers will need to really change their diets to order to help climate change. But um, I had a quick kind of look through the, your sustainability report um, um, as you were presenting, and it looks like um, there's some notable environmental benefits from, from the process. Yeah, I think we, I think we're slowly seeing people's awareness of the fact that actually, in a world where we need to curb climate change, that actually the food that we eat, you know, three times a day, I find that a, quite an empowering message. Actually, you can make an impact with every meal that you have, and one of the ways is 
potentially to reduce your consumption of meat and dairy. Mm. Often that is for health reasons, first of all. But we're here to say that actually we've got the science behind the fact that um, corn in particular um, is better for you, better for the planet. So essentially, as you say, in our report, we, we talk about some of the messaging around 90% less. Mm. So for example, one of our best-selling products is in our ingredients range. So that is like corn mints. So you can do whatever you want with that product as you normally would. Um, and the carbon footprint impact, for example, of that would be 90% less than beef. We work with the Carbon Trust as well to make sure we're comparing in a, a really credible way. So we're very conservative with our figures. Um, so yeah, I think you can have a huge impact by making pretty small changes, to be honest. And uh, it was touched on briefly during the kind of session that you were speaking on, that, that consumer-facing aspect of it. I think a lot of consumers, uh, myself included, um, you know, I, I really cut down on the amount of meat I eat, probably as a conscious choice. Um, due to partly because of the environment and partly because of the ethics around it as well. Um, so I think a lot of consumers are probably bought into that messaging that it's uh, it's a, perhaps a more ethical alternative, um, there's health benefits associated, but have, have you really tried to communicate or are you planning to communicate the environmental benefits, the, the lower carbon emissions, um, the, the I think it's less amount, a lot less amount of wheat that's needed to, to, in the process as well. Is that something that you are communicating or is it something that your consumers would be interested in? See, I, I run a, a technical team at Corn, and we think that the time really is now. We have a responsibility to start to communicate that to consumers um, as well as other businesses. Um, and I guess the question is how you do that. So a lot of what we do is quite quantitative. So it's about making it meaningful. Uh, we, for example, we created a sustainability calculator to enable people through our website to, to just kind of do a quick analysis of, okay, if I did swap that meal maybe once a week, hopefully more, what impact would that have? Mm. Um, so I think from our, in terms of our marketing from next year, the plan is for us to go for a, for a much stronger consumer-led kind of message. Um, and we'll see the impact that has, but I think in particular with our consumer base, you can imagine typically more ethical, more aware of environmental issues. So I think, um, yeah, it's about time really. And, and on the on the subject of, I suppose, ethical consumers, um, it was brought up again in the, in the session and you can't go anywhere any kind of sustainability event without plastics being um, brought up, probably rightly so as well. Um, obviously, Corn are, um, are taking big steps in terms of their black um, plastics packaging. Um, so for those who aren't aware, obviously, black plastics have real problem being detected in traditional recycling facilities and it often led to uh, a material that can be um, recycled a fair amount of time, not being recycled at all. Um, so do you want to just describe your, your approach to that? And I suppose um, what the internal conversations were like like did you have to convince many people that this was needed to be done yeah we um, black plastics a great example of um, a very serious issue we know as you say awareness around plastics is increasing and so so it should um, it's petrifying this that things we're seeing on TV and the blue planet to effect and then yeah but to be fair last spring so before any of this became mm. you know in real public knowledge we were warned I guess by our waste management company that there is an issue with black so we weren't aware of that so we set up some kind of project groups to look at the opportunity that we had to take a lead on the black plastic issue and we did it I mean we did it by um, kind of spring this year there are a few products out there that still remain in black they'll be kind of switched over to the, by the end of the year um, into either clear or certainly clear alternative or, or white to just you know it's, it's one of those where we get very frustrated as consumers about you know every person's waste mm. management is different in every locality which is frustrating but we have a responsibility at Quan to take proactive steps and not pass this problem which it is to the consumer 
So black plastic was great. It saves uh, over 300 tonnes of currently unrecyclable black material from hitting the market, which is amazing, over a year. And then it's about what else we need to do. So we joined, we were founding signatures to the UK Plastics Pact. Yep. And that's really helping us to understand how else we can push ourselves. We're not done. Um, currently, I think the figure is that over 80% of our packaging, plastic packaging is recyclable. Um, but then the, the next 20% is going to be quite very difficult. Um, so the aim to, to make that 100% recyclable by 2025 is going to be very difficult, but that's no excuse. Um, you know, plastic films and things, there's not currently a solution mm. or an alternative to those in the food sector, where you are looking to, you know, ensure food safety, first of all, and not increase food waste. So it's very difficult, but that's, yeah, we're, we're on with it still. Just looking at the sustainability agenda as, as a whole, what's... Um uh, what's what's the kind of interest of yours? If you if you were to go home, but okay, I don't want to talk about work. But someone was um, so there was that plastics documentary that's been on recently. But what was the kind of stuff you would talk to your friends and family about in terms of environmental protection? Is there, is there just an area that interests you? I think um, what's great about sustainability is oh, it's great on a good day, I guess, and depressing on a bad day. <laughs> is the is the um, yeah the complexity, but also the varied nature of the role. So yeah, at the moment we've just um, we've just finished, I guess, celebrating Recycle Week last week. Mm-hmm. Um, is a you know a, a wrap a recycle now campaign, and as part of that we had visitors talking to us around plastics as we, as you say in ocean plastic. So that's probably front of mind at the moment because you know you think as hard, as as difficult as programs about it are to watch. What right have we got to look away really? Um, so that's probably front of mind at the moment. And then after that it's just how on earth do we achieve the one and a half degree target? Yeah, you know when we're not seeing leadership <laughs> in other areas. So um, I'm hoping there's reasons to be cheerful but um yeah a a, a lot of um challenges that we face and plus i have a little girl she's four so i look at her and she just started school and we just we have to make some changes to because it's their future isn't it so that's yeah no definitely but it's it's, you know it's uh, promising that events like these and ed's own events do kind of set the stage for businesses to be able to discuss and and perhaps have a a bit more kind of uh, optimistic look on these um i am aware that the River Thames over your shoulder is looking quite choppy at the moment. Um, it's really windy out here and I've gone from being boiling hot inside City Hill to freezing out so I'm guessing you're probably the same so I'm going to cut this interview here and, and Lou, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. Well there you go. Um, yeah, Amazing to see just how much impact uh, taking a protein based diet can have. I was looking on their site. Two people going meat free for one meal would save the carbon equivalent of boiling 776 kettles. Does that encourage you, Matt? Are you going to be going meat-free or cutting meat out? Yeah, I'm not going to say I'm going meat-free because, um, you know, you it's, like it's, a, it's a celebrity season and after a few drinks, the, the, the doner kebabs, they, they come a calling, mm-hmm. don't they? Um, but no, yeah, it's, I've certainly made a, probably a deliberate effort to cut down. I mean, I say that, I've got like a ham salad for lunch, but... Okay. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? With lunches, it's very difficult to keep mixing up when you're meat-free, but I suppose you're just... Uh, yeah, you'd end up getting into the habit yeah, of it. There's only so much potato and leek soup you can have before mm-hmm. it drives you a bit crazy. <laughs> um, and I suppose January's just around the corner, so maybe that could be a t- good time for a New Year's resolution because I realise I'm also pointing the finger here, but <laughs> quite good to consider that one. Anyway, uh, I think that is the end of part two. Uh, George still hasn't joined us, still hasn't turned up, hasn't texted in or tweeted us. Um, So join us anyway in the final part of the show for a chat about women in sustainability, um, followed by our sustainability success stories of the week.
Welcome back to the third and final part of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Um, Sarah, this next segment is led by you. Uh, it was an event I didn't know was running and I didn't know you were at. So do you want to talk us through it? Well, it was a very exclusive, Luke. Um, I don't blame you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so the event was run by the Women in Sustainability Network, which is not like I made it sound. Um, there are hundreds of women taking part, working in the sort of sustainability, CSR, ESG and energy um, professions. Mm-hmm. And it was founded by Rianne Sherrington, who actually used to work in sustainability herself in the transport sector. Um, but has since left that sort of career. It's just really, well, she'll give an overview in this following segment about the sort of reasons behind setting it up, Um, but it's just UK-wide encouraging women in these professionals to meet regularly to sort of share their experiences, um, form new collaborative projects, um, share best practice, um, and share information about their challenges they're facing as well. Okay, interesting. Is it just kind of squarely focused on a particular job role, job function, or is it sustainability, energy as well, and environment? Um, no, it's across across, across. the board, really. Um, and this event that I was at was at Innocent's um, London headquarters, mm-hmm. Fruit Towers. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who we, and we spoke. We've been. Have we been there before? We are hopefully going to be going there. Okay. Soon. Not that they know this, but um, I. It, yeah, it's been a discussion going on. I haven't been there, but we we've interviewed them about it. Yeah, we have. That's it. I think yeah. we wrote a feature on it. Didn't yeah, we? exactly. Mm. Okay. Anyway, um, so uh, and you had a chat with Rianne there. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, let's hear that chat uh, with Rianne Sherrington, the founder and director of Women in Sustainability uh, now. So we're starting this segment of the podcast off with something a little bit different. Um, I know this is usually the part where we talk to the sustainability leader at a big corporation, um, but I am in West London this evening today where it's a bit grey and dismal, but it's bright and sunny inside Fruit Towers, which is Innocence London HQ. Um, And I'm here for my first ever Women in Sustainability um, networking event. Um, For listeners who aren't familiar with it, it's a sort of networking platform that runs across the UK to bring sort of female CSR, energy and sustainability professionals um, together to collaborate, uh, to share best practice and to tackle challenges together. Um, I'm here with the network's founder, Rianne Sherrington. Rianne. Hello. Hi, yeah. Thank you for taking the time to podcast with us this evening. You're welcome. Um, so could you just tell us a bit about sort of your background and how you came to set the network up in the first place? Sure. Well, Women's Sustainability is the network for professional women working right across the environmental sustainability sectors. And we're here to provide support, to provide um, inspiration and to um, provide all important networking opportunities uh, that, that we also need. It came about um, four or five years ago now in Bristol where I sort of put the invitation out to say who would like to come together for a cup of coffee to uh, meet, to discuss ways in which we could share our ideas, our strategies, our wisdom to address the challenges uh, that we all face in our in our careers in sustainability. And from that event, which 80 women turned up at, which I was quite surprised about, but from that event, um, Women's Sustainability was formed and we now run in Oxford. Bristol, London, Manchester and Newcastle and we'll be moving to to Bath uh, in the new year. And it is all about 
um, providing women with that space to really connect with each other, mm. to um, explore the issues and challenges they're finding in their careers or their, their businesses, and to um, hear each other's stories and to, I guess, grab that opportunity to, to learn from each other. Mm. And, well, as you said, have mentioned, collaboration is key, which is why this was born in the first instance. But since it was set up, what are some of the key learnings and trends that you've noticed, sort of the people attending, discussing? What sort of comes up again and again? Well, we do a national survey as well to support, um, to, to help us decide what we're going to use as our topics mm -hmm. for the events. And I'm always surprised, uh, but I guess not surprised, by the fact that women still do uh, struggle a bit with their confidence often we're expected to adapt ourselves to the cultures we're in rather than just being allowed to, to be ourselves so that always comes through so we do a lot of work around our, our soft skills if you like our sort of our personal development helping um, helping women understand what they can do um, to really allow their real talents, their real value to be shown and to allow themselves to, to progress. Um, so yeah, confidence is always an issue and it's something we, we find very popular. Um, but also, there's a lot of ambition in women. They, they really do want to make a difference. All of the women who attend Women's Sustainability events really want their careers to have an impact. And yet we're juggling so much. We are juggling um, often family lives, we're juggling caring or children, we're juggling wanting to get on. So I don't you know, it is getting complicated for, for women, um, and so that juggle, how to juggle it effectively, how to look after ourselves in the process, that's an, always comes back, it's always a very popular um, topic. Mm. No, well, I, I spoke with Rianne a couple of weeks ago on the phone, and one thing that you mentioned then was sort of problems with career progression, in that there's no problem for women to get into this profession, but there is for them to sort of stay in it. Um, would you mind discussing that in sure. a little more depth? Sure, I mean I think um, women naturally I think do care, we are seen as the carers um, and um, I think coming into CSR, coming into sustainability type roles, it's a very natural place for women to go to and you see that in some of the, the salary surveys that are out there, you see a lot of women entering the profession but as you move up just like in other sectors you see that drop off um, we might be getting to middle management but we're not there in the board, we're not there in senior, in senior management roles so we have got a, a a significant gender pay gap in sustainability which is really surprising because actually you know gender equality is paramount to sustainability you can't uh, we are not going to we're not going to tackle the world's problems if we don't fully allow uh, women to to be fully involved and so part of what we've been seeing with this network is allowing women to um, to, to sort of take ownership of that and say, actually, I do want to progress. Yes, I've got to be juggling. Yes, I've got these other things on my, my mind, but my career is important to me and I do want to progress. So we're doing a lot of sharing strategies to enable that to, to happen. Because I think, you know, even looking at the sustainable development goals, yes, we've got, you know, number five is all about gender equality. Um, but, you know, actually, it's right across the board. We have to have women staying. And I think one of the things we, we talk about and what we see in our, in our network hubs uh, around the UK is many, uh, often women are, are leaving organisations because they can't achieve the progression they want right. to see. And so they're setting up their own businesses, which is brilliant, and they're doing great work as sustainability consultants and so on. But I, I always look at that and say, how are we failing them? Are the organisations they're leaving um, being failing them in some way? Because why can't they stay? Why can't they you know, um, still have the careers they want, making the impact they want to have um, 
and yet uh, you know, they're, they're, they're unable to do that so that's why they're, they're setting themselves up so yeah that we definitely see about at least a third of the women coming here are, are, are women who've left because they're being failed by their organisations and just briefly to round it up you've touched on it just there so we cover a lot of environmental sustainability news and when we do sort of social sustainability it's a lot about sort of forced labour children in supply chains that kind of thing but as you right, rightly pointed out sort of gender is a massive thing within the SDG framework um, as well. Um, what do you think makes sort of climate change, environmental sustainability, and the general gender equality agendas so so joined up? Well, I think the the research is very clear. It's women who are right at the forefront of the impacts of climate change. So uh, women are the ones who are really feeling the consequences. Um, um, and so I guess that's why you know we're, we're, we're taking a, a, a notice of it. But I think women women care. Women have naturally, uh, I think, have got that uh, very values-driven approach. Some of the research suggests that women hang on to their values more strongly than men, which I find quite interesting. But I think we have to take this seriously because we, you know, these the, the problems we're facing are, are deeply complex, deeply challenging, and we want the best talent to be uh, addressing it. So if you don't have women. If you don't have gender equality right there, then you're, you're not going to be having the, the complete best talent. Well, it doesn't get spelt up much clearer than that, does it, Rianne? Not really. Um, I'd better let you go, because I'm aware that we've got a panel discussion um, to head to and some nibbles and wine to be enjoying. But thank you very much for joining us on the podcast this you're evening. You're welcome. Well, thank you very much to, to Rianne. Uh, yeah, amazing to hear how much she's doing. Uh, she's done just on her own, almost, starting that up and enabling women to flourish in their careers. Sarah, are you, are you part of this network? I guess I could be an honorary member because I'm not really the target audience, but like no. these are the people that are reading our articles on a mm. um, daily basis or have colleagues that are sending us press releases or pitching for interviews. Um, so it was just very valuable to go along. I'm looking forward to the next one in mm. the new year. Okay, nice. Well, on, on that kind of positive note, let's stick with it. Um, it's not that George is back. I don't know where he is. Uh, the door did open and close just now. I wondered if it was going to be him sticking his head around the corner, but no. But yeah, final bit of good news. This is our sustainability success stories of the week. Um, so, uh, Sarah, Matt, it's your time to sort of pick your favourite stories of the week. Uh, who's going first? Oh, I'll go first. It's not a story we've covered on our website, but um, I think it's a nice little, nice little tidbit of information, which is the Collins Dictionary Word of the Year. What was the word of last year? Do we remember this? Yeah, um, I can give you the last two years. Go on then. 2016 was Brexit. 2016 was Brexit. Yeah. 2017 was. Have a guess. Okay, I think I know this. That, is it selfie? Is it selfie? No, oh, not for Collins. That? 2015 then? Maybe it was. 20, 2017 was fake news, which is oh, yeah, two yeah. words. Oh. I did know that. Yeah. yeah. But I just think it's nice that you've had Brexit and fake news, which are two very divisive subjects mm. by nature. Um, and for 2018, the word of the year is single use in relation to the plastics epidemic that's going on. Mm-hmm. And I've don't think that's a very divisive subject. I think most people are kind of in agreement that uh, single-use plastic is something that needs to change, and it's um, it's just another example of that blue planet effect, isn't mm. it? Yeah, it's probably it's certainly Edie's word of the year, isn't it? If you just looked at our coverage, it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, at points you kind of think, wow, like it's it's you you almost. Um, c- completely not knocking the subject because mm. you want everything treated with equal weight, but sometimes you think like 
is probably hard for other areas of sustainability and energy at the moment. This came through at the Spark event. Yeah. Like energy managers saying it was quite difficult because their entire sort of board and sustainability team are massively focused on plastics because mm. it's a pressing issue. And it's, I had uh, that on my table as well. People were saying the problem is with plastics, it's very visual yeah. and very tactile. Like anyone will have purchased plastic in the last week, something mm. in packaging or a product containing um, plastic. Um, but then just with things that are a bit more abstract, like energy, how do you convert that into something where the story is just as easy to tell because people can see it? Mm. Mm. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Okay, well, we sort of we ended up tarnishing that bit of good news, but no, it's it's positive to see that it's <laughs> yeah. massive. And um, on the topic of Blue Planet, David Attenborough is making a return soon. I saw been signed up by Netflix yeah. and for yeah. an Our Planet yeah. series, which I'm very much looking forward to. Mm. And his other new thing on um, BBC starts on Sunday. Dynasties about sort of um, it's about how animal populations have changed over the years. Mm. And he wrote to me personally. I'm just going to get that on the podcast. <laughs> I'm quite proud of that. Handwritten after, letter. After you, after you like, pestered him for about six months. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it was just one, one letter I wrote to him. And he wrote back, yeah. So I've got a handwritten letter. Uh, I did actually, I framed it. It's quite, <laughs> might be sad, but yeah, got it nicely written in a frame. Telling us to sort of keep up with Where's work. that frame? It's in your car? Or? It's, no, it's on my windowsill in okay. my office at home. Yeah, I do have an office. Yeah. <laughs> I'm stealing the good news. Sarah, what's yours? <laughs> Um, so my good news is I did a blog recently about sort of the SDG stumbling blocks and one that keeps being brought up is is struggling to say like exactly what aligning with the SDGs will generate for a business. Mm -hmm. Like studies have been done on um, the impact that their adoption will have on sort of a national or a global scale. Um, but this week a report came out um, sort of putting into financial terms the, the benefits that alignment had generated for 13 businesses. Um, so the studies from TrueCost, which is a financial assessment firm, um, and they have calculated that 13 corporates to have aligned with the SDGs have generated um, 233 billion in <coughs> revenue collectively wow. from that oh, move. Wow. Um, That's a high number. Yeah, so the the business case for sustainability has been proved once again. Mm. Yeah, and that reminds me of the report from the Business Commission, which initially set out the it was in the trillions. Wasn't yeah, it? Was seven, five, seven trillion. I think, yeah, that yeah. was it. Value of achieving the SDGs. So good to finally see that kind of ha happening. Um, also is reminding me of the new case study series we're soon to launch, Matt. Yep, that's um, that's very much in the pipeline. It's gone out to a few companies this week, actually. Mm -hmm. so. If you've got a good SDG a case study and you want to share it, then um, get in touch. Um, anyway, that is a wrap for this episode, I think. There's nothing else for us to mention, is there? Mr. No, we're doing a little look ahead to the next week. Oh, yeah, I yeah. suppose we should have yeah. a look ahead. What, what's going on next week? Um, so, well, not next week, the next episode. Yeah. Um, we're back to the green room. <coughs> Mm -hmm. um, for, a, for a first ever two people I'll be speaking to okay. um, for a nice hour long interview um, with two very senior sustainability um, practitioners at AB InBev the world's largest brewer mm. um, and then I think other than that there's a Christmas special coming up but I think my main concern right now is getting some missing posters out which you all just <laughs> staple them up on some lampposts I suppose that's a good thing about us moving away from plastic milk cartons you get the you get the ones back where you can have a little missing person on the side, like you see in the films. We'll get, we'll get George on that, no problem. 
Um, yeah, well, hopefully he'll turn up. Uh, until next time, though, uh, it's uh, goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. Goodbye from Sarah. Goodbye. Uh, goodbye from a virtual George, because I'm sure he's out there somewhere and safe. And uh, it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.